0: Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at Candeochurch.com. John 6, through 71. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither jesus nor his disciples were there they got into the boats and went to capernaum looking for jesus when they found him on the other side of the sea they said to him rabbi when did you get here jesus answered truly i tell you you are looking for me not because you saw the signs but because you ate the loaves and were filled don't work for the food that perishes but for the food that lasts for eternal life which the son of man will give you because god the father has set his seal of approval on him What can we do to perform the works of God? They asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so we may see and believe you? They asked, what are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Therefore, the Jews started complaining about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except the one who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, It is not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died the one who eats this bread will live forever he said these these things while teaching in the synagogue in capernaum therefore when many of his disciples heard this they said this teaching is hard who can accept it jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this asked them does this offend you then what if you were to observe the son of man ascending to where he was before the spirit is the one who gives life the flesh doesn't help at all The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't wanna go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, To whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus replied to them, didn't I choose you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the 12, because he was going to betray him.
1: So last spring semester, Casey and I did something uh, that we've never done before. We did something called the Whole30. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of it or done this yourselves. Um, the, the formula for Whole30 is pretty simple. <clears throat> you just take any food um, that might bring you any level of joy and just don't eat that for 30 days. <laughs> that's, that's the Whole30. So uh, you cut out like dairy, sugar, wheat, all of those things. And people do this for the benefits of it, right? To like uh, feel healthier, detox your body or whatever. There's... There's actually a thing in Whole30 or like the second half of the month, you get this thing called tiger blood where you just feel amazing. And it sounds like I'm making that up. It's actually a real thing. So um, we did this right actually around the time of the pandemic with like COVID hitting. And so everything shut down. It was actually the perfect time to do Whole30 because there was no social temptations or anything like that. And as I was was thinking about it, um, if I were to do Whole30 now, like in the month of November, um, I would have bailed. I would have bailed. Because I would have hit day 26 and I would have looked at turkey, stuffing, and pumpkin and been like, I'm out. We are doing the whole 25 this month is what we're doing. And I would have cut it short. Why? Because the benefits of what, whatever Whole30 might have done for me in that moment, I would have gone, it's not worth it. No, like, I'm going to enjoy Thanksgiving. And what we're going to see this morning is we are going to see a crowd, this crowd that's been following Jesus in Galilee, Galilee that's uh, been really attracted to him because of the benefits he brings. And they're going to hit a moment, a fork in the road moment where they go, I'm out. And in a lot of ways, John's been building to this moment because in the Galilee ministry, he's becoming more and more popular, more, and more people want to be around him. You got these big crowds, but... But this morning, Jesus is gonna address this crowd head on. And we eventually get to verse 66, where it says, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. And the question I wanna ask is, how did they get to the spot where they turned away from Jesus? What did Jesus say or do where they decided to walk? And that's the the question we'll be answering this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can start turning to John 6. we have a lot to unpack this morning, 49 verses. So keep your Bibles open to John 6. It is long, it is dense. I will do my best to keep it under two hours. <laughs> you guys are laughing, but your third service. There's nothing after this service, so it could buckle up. Uh, all right, so as you're turning context, right? What just happened? Well, what just happened was the feeding of the 5,000s. Jesus took the, the loaves and the fish from this boy and multiplied it and fed 5,000 plus people. And then the disciples got in a boat, they go across the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus meets them halfway there in the spooky, kind of crazy, weird way, jumps in the boat. They get to the other side. It's basically what's happened. Well, the question is, well, what happened to the crowds? The one, like, now that they're full, now What? Well, essentially they're playing this huge game of like hide and seek with Jesus. They, they keep wanting to find him. His, his popularity is high. It would be as if, um, like if Michael Jordan came to the, to the Cedar Valley, everyone would want to know, where's Michael at? I saw him at Montage. Apparently he's at single speed. He's playing ball at the wreck. Like everyone would want to know where is Michael and they'd try and find him. And that's kind of what's happening here. It seems like they've quit their full-time jobs and their new full-time job is this go on a scavenger hunt and go find Jesus. So they jump in boats, they head to Capernaum where they think he's at and they find him. And they say, hey, rabbi, when'd you get here? And Jesus answers in verse 26. He says, truly I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and you were filled. So again, context, Jesus just fed this crowd. Their bellies were full. And Jesus is saying, you're like looking for me right now because you're, you're continuing to look for these physical benefits. You're looking for another positive uh, experience, essentially. They were, they were focused on the outcome of the miracle, not the person of the miracle. And then Jesus begins to teach. And he starts using a metaphor about food. And he says, Don't work for food that is temporary, but for food that is eternal. And what he means by that is believe essentially in the one whom God has sent. Well, what's the crowd's response to this? Well, in 3031, they say, What else are you going to do so that we'll believe? What else are you going to do? Which. Jesus just fed 5,000 people. You think that would be pretty impressive. It doesn't seem like they're impressed. Seems like it's kind of a tough crowd. Why would they say, what else are you gonna do? Well, I think what's in the back of their minds is the book of Exodus and Moses. And so uh, I'm gonna read just a quick snippet from Exodus 16 as God uses Moses to feed feed his people in in the wilderness. It says this, So at evening, quail came and covered the camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. And Moses told them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. So they would have had that story in the back of their mind. And my guess is they're comparing that to what Jesus just did. And they go, well, yeah, you fed 5,000, but... Moses fed a whole nation. I mean, you did it once. He did it for 40 years. You you had normal bread from this boy, but sure seems like Moses had bread from heaven. They weren't satisfied. They wanted more, but they were missing the point. Jesus tells them, yes, sure, the Israelites ate manna, got that. But Moses, he didn't give them the, true capital B bread from heaven so what's their response verse 34 then they said this sir give us this bread always does that sound any kind of familiar at all like that, that quick statement as we've been going through the book of John not too long ago we were in John 4 A woman at the well she's drawing water at the well because at some point, either at that point or later, she's gonna get thirsty. And Jesus says, hey, you know, there's water where you'll never get thirsty again. And she says in verse 14, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. But what was happening? Jesus was talking about a spiritual reality. She was thinking about a physical reality. This is another example in John 6 where Jesus teaches spiritual truths using physical objects, and the people completely miss it. Like, they completely misunderstand Jesus. They go, Wait, hold on. There's better bread than what Moses gave the people. Like, give us that bread always. Give us the good stuff. Texas Roadhouse Rolls, we want the good stuff, which side note, I do believe that stuff's waiting for us in heaven. Um, minimally the cinnamon butter is waiting for us in heaven. Um, but again, they, like, they're thinking physically. That's the lens that they're looking through, just like the woman at the well. So what does Jesus say? Well, in verse 35, he drops an absolute bomb and says, I am The bread of life, Jesus told them, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. I am the bread of life. That's not a mistake or a slip up. He says it again in verses 48 and 51. Not a mistake, very intentional. This is the first, as we zoom out, the first of seven I am statements that we'll see in the book of John. So again, when, when that crowd, when the Jewish people in that crowd would have heard, I am the bread of life, their minds would have flipped back to Exodus again and gone to Exodus three fourteen, where God with Moses of the burning bush goes, I am who I am, all capital letters. He is defining himself, giving himself his name, I am. So as Jesus says, I am the bread of life, there is a claim of deity in that. He is God. And what he does is he takes this I am statement and then applies it to himself using a specific metaphor here, bread. He's saying, yes, God used Moses, sure, to to feed the Israelites. But Moses did not give the Israelites the capital B bread from heaven. Jesus is the bread that has come from heaven. You can look through this passage, how many times it says comes from heaven. It's over and over and over. And he's saying, yes, your ancestors saw flakes on the ground that turned into bread and it temporarily satisfied their physical needs. He goes, I am the one, I am the bread of life that nourishes your souls eternally and spiritually and completely. But on top of that, on top of satisfying completely, he also protects and holds on to us eternally. I'm telling you, Candio, there are some truths and some promises in John six that are so incredible for us to hold on to. And I just just wanna unpack some of these. Uh, First one, verse 37, those who the father gives to Jesus, he will never, mark that, never cast out or reject. First thing to observe, it is God who is the one who is drawing people to himself. It is the God. It is God who is the one who brings people from spiritual death to life. But on top of that, those the father draws to himself and gives to his son, Jesus will never cast out. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his incredible overwhelming grace towards us. On top of that, Jesus says, I shall lose none. Mark it again, none of those given to me. Jesus protects and holds onto us eternally. He will never let us go. Not by, again, anything we do. Right, We continue in Christ, not because of anything we do or have done, but because of Christ's firm grip on us. Those are strong words, none, never. But on top of that, Jesus will raise up his saints on the last day. This is a beautiful promise for Christians. We will not spend eternity underneath the wrath of God. We will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus worshiping, worshiping him forever. Death cannot destroy those who are in Christ. These are, these are incredible promises, Christian for us to hold on to. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sins, turned to him, believe that God raised him from the dead, these are true of you. These apply to you. Let your heart sink into these truths. That might be, you know, a chunk of you in this room. Uh, for others of you, These don't apply to you. These promises do not apply to you, at least at this point, because you you haven't believed. You haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And in in this morning for you, there is an invitation. And I actually didn't see this the first time studying out this passage. Um, John MacArthur was helpful in initially spotting this out. And Mark Jackson, one of our elders affirmed this. But there's this beautiful kind of sequence throughout these promises where you get to verse 37 and it says, everyone the Father gives to me will Come to me. Come. It's an invitation. It doesn't matter what you've done in this life. It's an invitation to come to Jesus. But then you get to verse 40. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son Sees, that Greek word is to like, to gaze, to look intently upon, to study. That's essentially what we're doing as we're going through the book of John. We are seeing and beholding Jesus for who he is. And then finally come see and believe. Finishing verse 40, everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Anyone who believes in the bread of life has eternal life if you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, hear this invitation. It is an open door, open invitation. And Jesus promises, I will never cast out those who come to me. So will you come? Will you see Jesus and believe in him? Will you stop the running, the striving and humbly turn to Jesus? This is what you are offered this morning, what we are offered and ultimately what was offered to this crowd in this text. The question now becomes, what did the crowd decide to do? Okay, let's go back into the text. Read verse 41 with me. Therefore, the Jews started complaining about him saying, uh, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? So their response is kind of, they're not buying it. They're complaining. The interesting thing for Jesus here is, he doesn't, that doesn't cause him to back away. He actually just dives deeper into the metaphor. So he states again, I am the bread of life. And then he continues and we finally get to verse 51 where it says, I am the living bread, again, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now listen to this. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's kind of weird. So, what's the crowd say? At that, the Jews argued among themselves how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're getting more confused. I I don't know um, if you're a college student or have been in college and you had that class or have that class currently. It's just like every chapter, every section that you progress. It just gets more and more confusing, and you go, "I don't even understand what we learned fully the last section, but now we, we keep going and for me, in physical therapy school is neuroanatomy, like I, I didn't fully wrap my head around this pathway, but now we're onto this pathway, and my head just hurt right here, like most of the time. Uh, if you have that class now, you're hoping you have a, a chapter final, not a cumulative final, right? I think that's kind of what's going on here they're just they just keep getting more confused almost as Jesus continues to dive into this metaphor. They didn't understand. But again, Jesus doesn't hit the brakes. He kicks it into fifth gear. And then we get to 53 through 58. And I'm telling you, at this point, we're in the deep end of the pool. Just listen to verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. That would have been shocking to the Jews in that crowd. Because the book of Leviticus forbids any kind of drinking of blood. So what's going on here? Again, they're confused. They're thinking through that physical lens. And Jesus is talking about spiritual things here. Nobody ever actually physically ate Jesus' flesh or drank his blood. That's not what he's saying. So what is Jesus saying? Well, I think it comes down to one word and that word is Calvary. Our savior Jesus was betrayed and falsely accused and brought uh, before both the Sanhedrin and Pilate. And before being sent to the cross, he was flogged. If you're not familiar with flogging, they typically use a short whip with small iron balls and sharp pieces, typically sheep bones or things like that interwoven throughout the whip. And the criminal was tied to the post and flogged by one or two soldiers. And as one source said, um, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well determine how long the victim would survive on the cross. After the scourging, the soldiers often taunted their victim, and then, as the criminal was placed on the cross, gasping for breath, the criminal's back, which had been torn open repeatedly by the previous flogging, would scrape against the wooden cross with each and every breath. Our Savior's flesh was torn and his blood was spilled. Why? Because somebody had to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And Jesus chose to pay that on a criminal's cross as he absorbed the wrath of God. So when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, What he is saying is believe in him and his atoning work on the bloody cross. You have to accept both when it comes to Jesus. To eat the bread of life is to believe in him and to drink his blood is to believe in what happened on that cross and the empty grave that followed. This is what it means. You are what you eat. It becomes a part of you. If you eat the bread of life, you are united with Christ. So therefore, Jesus is calling us, this crowd, to completely identify with, surrender to, and be his. Again, how did the crowd respond? Verse 60. Therefore, turning point. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? This teaching is hard. Why? Well, I do believe first, again, they, were, they, they, they kept missing Jesus. So they're thinking physically, Jesus is talking spiritually, so they keep missing. So they are a bit confused, I think. But I, I do believe they understood enough. Like I, I think they were picking up what Jesus is throwing down here. I think there's there's multiple reasons why they eventually were offended by Jesus in this teaching. First is this, Jesus is claiming deity. He's dropped I am and that he comes from heaven. Pretty clear, he's saying he's God. Second thing, these people, this Jewish crowd, they were looking for the kind of Messiah that would overthrow the Roman occupancy, right? They're looking for a Messiah to bring a sword, not a Messiah hanging on a cross. And it's sure sounding a lot like in this passage, this is gonna be the kind of Messiah that will be hanging on a tree. On top of that, finally, Jesus is challenging them here. He is pressing them to be all in. Their view of Jesus was too small. It was too shallow. They just saw him as this like kind of cool guy who does party tricks and helps our bellies get full and all of these things. And Jesus is telling him, telling them, I am God, which means the implications of that is your full allegiance and surrender to him. And I don't believe this crowd liked that. And it became a stumbling block to them. Now, how does Jesus respond to that? Again, he, he doesn't withdraw. He just continues and continues to press. Verse 61, does this offend you? Does this offend you? Real quick. Jesus is not afraid to offend. Uh, I think it's worth noting that if you believe in a God who never challenges you or offends you, it's probably a God that you've invented. The true Jesus that we see in the Bible is going to challenge your desires and your assumptions. You can just like expect that, count on that. And that's what he's doing here. He says, does this offend you? And then he goes on to continue to press forward and say, start talking about the ascension. He continues to press that nerve of, I've come down from heaven. I've come down from heaven. I'm here. I'm going back to heaven where I belong as God. Keeps pushing them. And then we get to verse 66, finally, where it says, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. After this moment, many went back to their old ways, their old jobs and their life pre-Jesus and likely their sin. Now, I wanna just like take a step out of the the text and the narrative for a little bit. And uh, let's talk about something else. I I wanna talk about um, climbing Mount Everest. So if you were to climb Mount Everest next week, um, first of all, it's not cheap. I looked it up. It's like 10 to $65,000 if you wanna climb Mount Everest because you gotta pay for transportation, you gotta get your Sherpa guides, you gotta get your food, your gear, your permits, all these things. Now, if you do it, If you go and do it and you climb Everest, awesome. Lots of benefits, probably gonna become pretty popular. All those things that come with climbing Mount Everest. Um, But to summit Everest, there gets a point, 26,000 feet up in the air, 8,000 meters up in the air, that from that point on is called what I believe probably the locals named the death zone. The death zone. From that point up, 26,000 meters up, your body can't get enough oxygen to live sustainably. Like your body starts to die. So so if you were to climb Everest and you get to that 26,000 feet mark, imagine that Sherpa guide looking at you and saying, all right, the rest of the way we're in the death zone. Are you in or out? Is this worth it? Or do you wanna go back down? These disciples face their own fork in the road moment, eat the bread of life or walk. uh, And unfortunately they chose to walk. And my understanding, my interpretation of this text is that um, this was a final decision. There's a finality to this. These are not true disciples. They hung around for a while. They loved the benefits of Jesus, but they kept keeping him at a distance. And when it came to truly following him and believing in him, they chose to leave. They came, they saw, but they didn't believe. I just want to acknowledge this morning that this is a very sobering reality in this text. They were denying God which means the only thing left for them in eternity is the wrath of God. Hebrews 10 gives us this warning. Listen to this. For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. So receive the knowledge of the truth, You hear what Jesus has to say, but you choose the other path. You keep on sinning, you walk the other way, you reject Jesus. It's not a path that leads towards salvation. It's a path that leads towards the wrath and judgment of God. That's the path that they chose in verse 66. And it's the path that Judas chose in verses 70 and 71. And unfortunately, um, many still choose this path uh, today. I wanna remind you this morning that There is a reality that Jesus' teaching is very polarizing. Very polarizing. Was back then, still is today as we read God's word. There will be some who humbly repent, but there will be others who reject him as Messiah and walk. And even though that's a reality, and even though I know that in my head, it is hard to watch. I've seen it happen. I've I've seen in ministry people come, see Jesus, hang around Jesus, kind of like the idea of Jesus, but then eventually reject him and walk. As you deny Jesus, you are choosing a path of destruction, a path, as Hebrews 10 would say, that leads to hell, not heaven, a path that leads to death and not life. Verse 66, I believe, should be a wake-up call for us this morning. And we have to ask the question, how did they get there? How did they get to that spot where they looked at Jesus, turned and walked away? And I really believe it started and ended with them wanting the benefits of Jesus, but not being all in, not fully believing in him. And it begs the question this morning, as I kind of flip this over and put it on your laps, the question, are you only interested in the benefits of Jesus or are you all in? There is a theology out there that some people believe um, that if you believe in Jesus, he will just get you more stuff. (laughs) Uh, He'll get you more money. He'll get you the better car. He'll get you the nicer house. That's the end goal of the Christian life. You believe in Jesus and you just get more of those things. And I would just say this morning, if any of that theology is creeping in your heart, please kill it. Jesus is not looking for that kind of disciple. That being said, The interesting thing is, as we walk in this life, there will be moments where we will experience the benefits of following Jesus in some pretty awesome ways. There will be moments when Jesus will feel so near to you, specifically when when you've just put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I know some of you SALT students likely here this morning have this semester put your faith and trust in Christ and Jesus seems so near, it's awesome. There's going to be moments and times when it's like, man, it feels like the prayers that I'm offering before Jesus, they continue to be answered. Or times when it, and it feels very advantageous to be a Christian in society. Or just times when as you're following Jesus, it just seems like things are going great. And that's okay. Life's good. Family's good. Job's in a great spot. Financially, you're in a great spot. You're healthy. Things are good. But then Life happens. And um, there are times when those benefits might begin to disappear. Where Jesus doesn't seem as near as he once was, or at least feels that way. That the prayers that you're offering to Jesus aren't being answered, or at least aren't being answered in the way that you were expecting. That all of a sudden, it's not the most popular thing to be a Christian in society. That things in life actually are starting to go south. Job's falling apart. Family's not in a good place. You're sick. You get COVID. The ripple effects begin. Financially, not in a good spot. What happens in your life when the benefits or initial attraction of following Jesus begin to disappear? When you're confused and you don't understand, what will your response be? The Bible literally just provided us with one path that people choose, verse 66. But I want to say this morning there's another path. And it's the path that the true disciples took. And I want to read for us this last little chunk, verses 67 through 69. After these disciples, uh, this crowd turned back, Jesus turns to the 12. He says, you don't want to go away too, do you? Listen to Simon Peter. He answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. What an incredible response from Peter. A guy who typically has his foot and his mouth seems to have his stuff together here, right? He, he's saying, where else would we go? You are the Messiah. You are the Holy One of God. You provide eternal life. And this is Peter and the, the disciples' profession of that reality. Now, here's the interesting thing. And I believe this is key. I don't think the disciples, actually I know they didn't have all the answers right here. They also probably were a little confused. Like I imagine as Jesus is unpacking this teaching, at some point, Peter probably turned over to Andrew and go, did he just say we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood? You know, like like I'm sure they had those moments where I was like, what did he just say? And what does that mean? And they're gonna continue to learn all throughout John and his death, burial and resurrection, what all of these things mean. They didn't have all the answers, but they believed. They came, they saw, they believed, they believed it all. It's the difference between the crowd and the true disciples. It's not that the disciples had all the answers. It's that they believed that Jesus is who he says he was. Uh, this past week, um, I got a text uh, from a staffer, a uh, sweet story of uh, someone uh, within Salt Company that has recently put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And in this text... I just kind of copy and pasted this little snippet, said this, we've been talking a ton about the barriers that have kept her from belief. In the past few weeks, she started realizing they have basically all been obliterated. Lots of doubts and honest questions along the way. But one of my favorite things she said a few weeks ago, and this is awesome, is that she realized she can't necessarily have all the answers to every question, but she can have Jesus and now she does. You don't have to have all the answers to surrender your life to Christ and believe he is who he says he is. So what will you do with Jesus? Do you want the benefits or do you want Jesus? Comfort costs. Do you want the, the gifts or do you want the capital G giver? Do you see Jesus as someone who just assists you in your fleshly desires? As John Piper would say, Jesus didn't come to meet your sinful fleshly desires. He came to change your desires so that he's the the main one. Do you see Jesus as useful or do you see Jesus as precious? When the benefits of following Jesus seem to wear off, what do you do? I love Peter's words. To whom else would we go? Where else would we go? You are the only one that provides eternal life. Everything else in this world comes up empty. Only you can satisfy. Is that your response? Even when the benefits seem to disappear. Because there will be times, Christian, when every trace of Jesus seems to have vanished. It seems like the benefits are gone. But it is in those times, I believe that God grows us the most. It's in those times we have the opportunity to say with Peter, we have no other hope but Jesus. And when those moments come, yes, verse 66 is an option. That's a path people can choose. I would press you the other path to dive deeper into the arms of Jesus and swim in the ocean of his promises to you that he will never cast you out that he loses none that have been given to him, that he will raise up his saints on the last day and he will completely satisfy us as the bread of life. Jesus this morning is calling us to completely identify with, surrender to, and be his, to believe in his promises, but to believe in him and his atoning work on the cross as our bread of life. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are so grateful for the cross. And in so many ways, I can't, Jesus, understand or wrap my mind around the physical pain that you went through on the, pro- on the cross, but even more so uh, the reality that uh, you hung on that cross until it was finished, absorbing the wrath of God in our place. We didn't deserve it. It was your grace, but we are thankful. We are a thankful people. We are thankful that you are the bread of life that has come, that satisfies our souls as we turn to you, Jesus. We are grateful for the truths in this text and we cling to you as you continue to have your firm grip on us. We love you and it's in your name we pray, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.